Today I have two readings, one poetic and one prosaic. After the readings, we will sit in silent meditation. The poem is from Mary Margaret Carlyle, and it's titled Tethered in Llano Escatado. I rode westerly at dawn and found a mallard swimming in listless circles in a trailside cattle trough his bright feathers jewel-like in the summer sun. He made no move to fly. A leather dipper tether tangled round his legs. I put him on the ground and gently cut him loose. He sat unmoving for the longest time until I finally threw him into the air. The mallard lifted north toward running water draw, a hundred miles past the rocky hills and gulches of my temporary home. The bird had been as trapped as I am now by circumstance and need, tethered tight by leather strands of memories. I wonder, will I fly off alone when life's sharp knife cuts me free? Or will I wait for someone else to toss me to the waiting sky? The prose reading is part of a letter dated May 3 of this year from the Seminary of the Street, written by Nicola Torbett about their 12-step program, Recovery from the Dominant Culture. We are all to some degree captive by the institutions and systems upon which we rely for the meeting of our basic needs. For example, we often must sacrifice some piece of our integrity to keep a job, to procure needed goods or services, or to stay out of prison for, say, war tax resistance. Likewise, we have few options for safety in emergencies that do not involve calling the police and potentially sending someone into a broken, racist, criminal injustice pipeline. The problem is that every time we make one of these sacrifices of integrity without adequately acknowledging and mourning what we are doing and without dreaming alongside others of alternatives, we are further dehumanized. We have all been molded and shaped to some degree by the systems in which, in which we live and by the worldview which underlies them, which includes individualism white supremacy, the idealization of self-sufficiency, and dubious ideas about how to achieve security, status, and esteem, and so on. That is not to say that we have succumbed completely. In fact, quite the opposite of true we have, is true. We have probably all resisted as much as we can. Still, prolonged exposure to this culture has hurt us and undermined our humanity, and we want it back. Life is an art form. Live your life aware that it is a work of art. In what medium are you found? Are you poetry or prose, paint or plaster, sculpture or sound? Are you harmony, melody, rhythm, or role. Pick a form, live it loud and clear, bright and bold, and louder still as you grow old. 
I chose ministry, perhaps a bit late for silly old me. I brought four lessons to the ministry, to this intern ministry. Awe, forgiveness, happiness, and community. I learned four lessons while working here. Awe, forgiveness, happiness, and community. I will take four lessons with me to the ministry I hope to be. Awe, forgiveness, happiness, and community. For awe, consider the Hubble Space Telescope, the deep field experiments. In 1994, there were 100 billion galaxies, that's 10 to the 11th, in the known universe. And then we launched the Hubble Space Telescope. The director of the Hubble Institute used his director's discretionary time to take a picture of a thumbnail-sized dark spot in the night sky where there were no known stars. Hubble found 1,500 new galaxies. If we divide the night sky into equal thumbnail-sized areas, there should be 129,600 spots, each with 1,500 new galaxies. That was in 1996. In 1998, they did Hubble Deep Field South, 180 degrees away. The final image revealed a dazzling gallery of 2,500 galaxies hidden in that one tiny spot of supposedly dark sky. In 2004, they completed Hubble Ultra Deep Field, a million-second-long unblinking stare at a spot so tiny that 50 would fit on your thumbnail. Hubble found 10,000 galaxies. Hold out your thumb in any direction. That tiny bit of sky covered by your thumbnail has 500,000 unseen galaxies. God is busier than we thought. (laughs) And so is First Universalist Church especially the Faith in Action, Social Justice, and Unity Center programs. 1,600 hours donated in the day of service alone, and thousands of hours for Habitat for Humanity, Interfaith Power and Light, Moose Jaw, Moving Planet, Moving Faith, Immigration Forum, Earth Day, Environmental Immigration Mashup, and this year, Minnesota United for All Families, Phone Banking, and a dozen others. I have not named. As a new minister, stepping into the Faith in Action programs here is like drinking from the fire hose. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Forgiveness. Forgiveness is better than hate. Consider the case of Vicksburg, Mississippi. It was named after a Methodist minister, a conscientious objector during the Revolutionary War. During the American Civil War, the war between the states, the city was besieged by Ulysses S. Grant for 47 days and starved into submission. 
The surrender of Vicksburg cut the Confederacy in two and doomed it to lose the war. The date they surrendered was July 4, 1863. The residents of Vicksburg did not celebrate the 4th of July holiday from 1863 until 1947. And they only did it then because the hero of World War II, General Ike Eisenhower, came to the city to visit on the 4th of July and shamed them into doing it. <laughs> Some lackluster attention was given to Ike's request for a few years, but eventually the city returned to its old pattern of ignoring 4th of July celebrations. There has not been a Vicksburg-sponsored 4th of July fireworks display since 1988. Forgiveness and reconciliation are hard to find in that place. And who suffers? They do. Forgiveness is better than hate, even if very late. Forgiveness is easy to find at First Universalist. I have seen it at work, in small groups, and in business meetings. It flows from the light of the chalice and the reflections with which we start every meeting. Long may that spirit flow, take it home with you, and out into the world. The world needs it. Happiness. On a scale of one to seven, how happy are you? There is a statistical correlation between happiness as rated by that simple subjective question and objective measurements like, how, like longer life, fewer colds, and how productive you are at work. Nuns lead routine and sheltered lives. They eat the same bland diet, they do not smoke or drink, they have the same reproductive and marital histories. They are in the same socioeconomic class. They have the same access to good medical care. So almost all the usual confounds of a medical study are eliminated. And yet, there is still a wide variation in how long nuns live and how healthy they are. In 1932, 180 nuns in Milwaukee took final vows. Each was asked to write a novitiate short biographical sketch. If you read these novitiate essays, you can easily divide them into two groups, one of which has a much higher probability of a long and healthy life. One sister used the words very happy and eager joy, expressions of effervescent good cheer. Another sister's autobiography, in contrast, contained not a whisper of positive emotion. When the amount of positive feeling was quantified by raiders who did not know how long the nuns lived, it was discovered that 90% of the most cheerful quarter was alive at age 85 versus 34% of the least cheerful quarter. Similarly, 54% of the most cheerful, cheerful quarter was alive at age 94 as opposed to 11% of the least cheerful quarter. Was it really the upbeat nature of their sketches that made the difference? Perhaps it was something else in these essays. 
No, the research showed that the only correlation was the amount of positive feeling expressed in the sketch. It seems that a happy nun is a long-lived nun. So happy people live longer, so what? Is happiness something you can choose? Well, it turns out that positive psychology research shows what Buddha, Jesus, and my grandparents already knew. You can raise your level of happiness a peg or two by working on these components of happiness, getting more pleasure out of life, stop and smell the roses, or the coffee. Becoming more engaged in what you do. This is simple Buddhist mindfulness. Count your blessings. Write them down. Keep a gratitude journal. Make and keep your friends. This requires effort, but it's cheaper than therapists. <laughs> Perform random acts of kindness. Practice your virtues. Virtues can be improved by practice. There are six virtues ubiquitous across cultures. Wisdom, courage, kindness, justice, temperance, and transcendence. Happiness is easy to grasp. All you have to do is let go. Here at First Universalist, we have had our fair share of sorrows and tragedies. But our happiness quotient is very high. The scientific verification of ancient values and knowledge seems to be well understood here at First Universalist. We have ritualized stopping to smell the roses and the coffee. We have made a virtue of listening, and we practice it. Community. I'm going to finish this water. We are all facing numerous potential disasters. And to recover from a disaster, you need a community. In September of 2005, for three entire days, my daughter and I skipped school and work. We spent those three days at Houston's Convention Center sorting an eight-foot-high pile of shoes. It took us three days because people kept adding to the pile. To find a shoe's mate, we started two rows sorted by size of unmated shoes, one left and one right, and we eventually matched up most of them. The cause of this holiday was Hurricane Katrina. and the 240,000 evacuees that came to Houston. Rebecca Solnit, in her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, compares disasters from the 1906 San Francisco quake, pardon me, to Hurricane Katrina. Her conclusion is contrary to the dominant culture's message of fear your neighbor in a disaster. She concludes you need not fear your neighbor. 
your fellow citizen. After a disaster, we are outside the dominant culture. Once outside the culture, people rise to the occasion, and they do it with joy, finding meaning and purpose in the work of caring, of community, no matter its minor size or temporary nature. Consider Houston that September of 2005. The following numbers are from Nicole Garrelis in City Journal, published in 2006, less than a year after the disaster. This data is consistent with other reports. In the days after Katrina, half of New Orleans' population, or about 240,000 people, fled west on Interstate 10 to Houston, a new population equal to 10% of Houston's citizenry. By week's end, Houston stadium, stadiums were housing 30,000 evacuees. Tens of thousands more were staying in various shelters and private homes. In the second week, Houston offered every adult hurricane evacuee a 12-month voucher for a two-bedroom apartment at the median local price of $700 a month. The cost was $30 million a month, but cheaper than hotels or travel trailers. FEMA eventually reimbursed Houston. Houston stopped awarding vouchers in December because they were out of vacant apartments. Houston had given out 46,000 vouchers, housing well over 100,000 people, the majority from Orleans Parish. Because Houston took so many evacuees directly from New Orleans Superdome and Convention Center, its population of New Orleanians is more heavily underclass than New Orleans itself. Houston's public schools took in more than 20,000 new students. When, Mayor Harris of Harris, when Harris County Judge John Eccles and Houston Mayor John White commissioned a jobs fair in early October, thousands of evacuees couldn't wait to get back to work. 8,500 showed up. 2,000 found work that day. Thousands didn't have to seek new jobs because Walmart and Home Depot transferred them to their new cities. Some national food chains did the same thing, and a federal grant put another 1,300 to work at local nonprofits, giving them an alternative to unemployment while looking for full-time jobs. The state also used federal funds to train interested evacuees for jobs ranging from construction to nursing. A year later, Houston remains home to 150,000 New Orleans evacuees. That was the local government response. Let me tell you of the people's response. The evacuees from the Superdome and Convention Center arrived with nothing. In the first week, Houston's closets were emptied. Every cot and sleeping bag and blanket in the city was donated. You could not buy bottled water for a week because it had all been bought and donated. The line of cars carrying donated goods snaked around for miles around the Astrodome complex and another around the George R. Brown Convention Center. 
People waited in line in 95 degree heat for more than an hour just to donate. My daughter and I and several thousand volunteers spent three days at the George R. Brown Convention Center sorting clothes and shoes and household goods. We stocked a giant free store, a free mart, a mitzvah store for our new neighbors to help them get settled in their new home. It was Houston's finest year. Before the year was over, we did not call them evacuees anymore. We called them citizens. That is the lesson in community I brought. But I do not need to teach it here at First Universalist. You know it in your hearts. I see you live it in your daily lives, in the diversity of the RE and the children's choir, in the unity leadership programs, in the way First Universalist strives to overcome the dominant culture, its individualism, its racism, and its illusion of self-sufficiency, Universal, First Universalist fights that with the ideal of community, a faith community with a new map, an alternative cultural map. Remember our sermon series from last fall? You know community. I call you citizens.